Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast, where I share inspiring stories of Budoka around the world. Please share your favorite episodes with your dojo and community so this effort can be spread to more corners of the earth. This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon. By donating as little as a cup of coffee to a bowl of ramen, they've directly made this podcast possible. If you're enjoying this work and can spare a small tip each month, it would mean a lot to me. I'll also be sharing the occasional behind the scenes clips and side initiatives that build on this podcast. You can find it at www.patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. Thanks in advance for your support. And now, on to the interview. So we're, we're together because I, I realized that there's a lot of interrelation between the things that we do in the dojo, concepts in the martial arts, and uh, everyday life. And I, I actually feel that unless we bring some of it into the everyday life or we bring some of everyday life into our art, it's not sustainable and it's also not as useful. It's, um, so um, I like that to make it interesting. In this case, food is something that's pretty universal. So I found Sita and Aurelian, who regularly post some amazing photos of their, their cooking. So I thought it'd be a good chance to bring up some topics. And then we'll, we'll discuss that in some topics that are related to our practice. And then we'll discuss that in relation to uh, cooking and food and all that. So um, with that, Maybe we actually, before we get into topics, why don't you just give a little background of how you guys, how you got into like really cooking and making it like something that's not just a throw together um, sustainable meal, but something that you can demonstrate something that has quality. Uh, so since Sido was here first, why don't you start? Uh, so how, how I started cooking, I think, is purely a survival. Like when I moved out of my parents' house, I had to learn to cook for myself. And because uh, I love food, I, I don't want to, I just want to cook stuff that I actually want to eat. Um, and a lot of it is actually learned from uh, my dad, who uh, was the cook of the house. Uh, and uh, I guess like, you know, with social media and everything like that, you start to look at what you're cooking from a third party perspective. Like, is this presentable? Can I, can I get likes? <laughs> um, but mostly it's like, you know, if you put enough effort into it, it's something that I would, you know, you would like to share with everybody. So that, that means like your, your dad like paid a lot of attention to making a good meal or did you see that from social media or like watching food shows or, like the tasty things on Facebook. Yeah, no, my, my dad, like me, we, we cooked uh, more than, than nicely, you know what I mean? Um, we cooked the food that we, I guess he himself grew up with. And um, yeah, I mean, the presentation just, you can always make something look nice in a bowl or on a plate. Okay. Uh, Aurelian? Um. Well, I, uh, I come, my, my family are quite um, big on, on cooking. I'm actually the worst cook in my family. Um, my, both my parents are amazing cooks. I would probably rate my mum just slightly above my dad. Um, and then my brother's just slightly below them. And I'm kind of the, <laughs> the bottom of, of the skill tree in, in my family. Um, and when I first moved out for university, I 
because I was so busy with um, with study, with training, um, and then eventually um, I started working as well. I didn't really have time to cook, so so back then I was I was one of those people who lived on instant ramen uh, more often than not, and uh, I my the extent of my cooking ability was being able to not burn pasta. That was about that was as good as I could be at the time, um, and even then I didn't I wasn't a hundred percent successful at that. So, <laughs> It was only um, a few years later I kind of got really sick of, of living on such sort of basic, bland, not hugely interesting um, taste, in terms of taste food that I sort of, it sort of kicked my ass into gear and um, I started researching how to cook and different cooking techniques. Um, my first go-to person to, um, um, or source of information about how to do that was my mum, obviously, and then and my dad as well a little bit. And the rest has been um, just sort of teaching myself and, you know, seeing what works and what doesn't and sort of experimenting with everything I do. And um, and also looking online with some great stuff um, uh, for some great, um, not just recipes, but also hacks for how you can do something better or do something faster as well. Um, so these days it's it's kind of a big, uh, big part of my um my evening before I go to training or after I get get back from training, I always make sure to cook something nice. And I've got pretty good as well at um, uh, sort of doing quite complicated recipes very quickly because I oh. get back quite late. So it's it's easy. Yeah. It, I've been able to sort of streamline the, the whole cooking process and just do something nice and quick in like 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, and then eat immediately. So I want to get into the organization and structure of like the kitchen to do something like that. But first, where do you guys get your inspiration from? Like you said, mentioned like your parents cooked, but now like you're probably making your own dishes. Do you like see things in restaurants or on TV or um, where do you, where do you come up with whatever you feel like cooking in the time? Uh, yeah, I, th I would say the things that I know how to cook, that I like are mostly from my parents and grandparents, the mm. things that I've grown up with. Um, sometimes I would go to a restaurant, I would, I would think something's amazing and then maybe try to recreate it, but it's not something that I regularly go back home to, to cook. So like my comfort foods and the ones I guess that I um, post are mostly from my childhood. Um, even if it's like a bowl of, you know, sashimi or something, it's always something that goes is is has a relationship to what I used to eat as a as a kid as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, it reminds me of like these cooking shows where you you have to make a dish, but you also like to have to convince the judges that there's some kind of connection, like they have a story behind the food. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of the same thing with um, all the, the kind of food I, I really um, kind of go back to and it's are all my favorite foods are the foods that I've learned how to cook for my parents and the stuff that I was kind of raised on. Um, conveniently also, it's um, a lot of those are, if you've got leftovers, they're actually just as good reheated after you just put them in the microwave and take them out and eat them and eat them. They're just as good as if, uh, as if they're freshly cooked. So sometimes I'll make a huge batch of something 
and then put it in a, like a bunch of Tupperwares, like, and then heat up the next day or even a week later, and it'll still be just as good as if I just cooked it. Wow! So that takes some skill. Like usually, re-microwaving stuff that's been in the fridge. There's actually this recent Netflix show that we've been binging on called uh, "Best Leftovers." So like okay. the, the, the competitors have to go in and uh, they're given these different leftovers and they have to reimagine it in a new new dish. So they're they're taking stuff that has already been cooked, and yeah, then they're trying to make it edible again. Yeah, for example, <laughs> like there's this there's this one holiday special where it's like a Thanksgiving meal, at least like mm. Western Thanksgiving turkey um, stuffing and all that. So they give you like a Tupperware that's like three quarters finished and it's been in the fridge for maybe a day or so. Mm. So like uh, others, either like the salads are fully soggy because like all the water and the tomatoes have leaked out or mm. like the stuffing would be super dry because like the, the fridge extracted all the moisture. And then they have to just, mm. they, they, they're given like some extra ingredients, but then they can add in. Um, anyways, I thought that this was uh, interesting when like I'm, I might be forcefully bringing patterns from like this cooking into the martial arts, but I think there's little stuff that exists in, in this sense, like both of you mentioned that your parents um, are big inspirations for the kind of food that you cook. Uh, similarly, most of us, like what we, we all here do Iaido, you two do Jodo, and probably a lot of how we interpret uh, the techniques also come from our own senses. Like we, we look at them and we're like, oh, I like the way that they do this. So I'm gonna do it that way. So that's kind of a segue into uh, some of the topics that we're gonna discuss today. Uh, so I guess the first one would be kind of related to that sense is um, hierarchy in the kitchen and in the dojo. So we know that um, the hierarchy exists for a few reasons, um, basically in culture, well, at least from my perspective, from my experience um, in organization design and stuff like that, you need hierarchy because you need to have someone make decisions. And sometimes you need to make decisions quickly. Sometimes you need to decide, you have to make decisions on the path or the direction you want this organization to take. Otherwise you just get pulled into different pieces. You'd be inefficient and you'll be attracting like different people. So it's hard to stay aligned. So in, in that sense, hierarchy in a dojo is important. Now, um, yeah, so so your your guys' experience with hierarchy and then hierarchy in the kitchen and talk about like your own feeling about that. Uh, actually, since Sita started the last couple of ones, why don't Aurelian, you start on this one? Well, uh, in, in both the kitchen and in the dojo, I'm, I'm kind of really super chill. Uh, I'm not, um, I'm not hugely um, uh, sort of super strict about uh, seniority, hierarchy, uh, where everyone stands and everything like that. It's also, I should add that um, once one thing that is kind of, it's a benefit, but it's also, um, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that the dojo I train at, I am not the sensei. I'm, I'm also, I'm far from being the senior most person there. There's, there's a bunch of people above me. So they have say over, over how where people stand, where what people do, etc. So generally, I'm not, I don't have anything, any sort of real responsibility, which kind of frees me up to do my own training. But it means I don't have that experience of, I, or my experience of imparting uh, in the last couple of years, I've been given more teaching duties inside the dojo. But 
that's purely I've been I've been told this person hasn't learned this technique yet. Go teach them it for for a bunch of different people. Um, but that's just an isolated technique. I'm not teaching them how to behave inside the dojo. I'm not telling them go stand there. I'm not explaining the rules to the dojo because everyone knows them already. Um, but uh, I'm more of a uh, if someone if I see someone doing something wrong, I will maybe just I'll just point it out to them kind of gently and say you might want to do it this way um but for the most part I leave I'm I'm just sort of very very chill I don't um I don't I'm not very uh, forceful inside the dojo I just let most people get on with with their training and um and just trust that everyone has the common sense and um, sort of uh, Buddha education to know what is done inside the dojo and what isn't so I have a question. That um, that's interesting. Like a couple of things. First, um, because you uh, you didn't start Iaido in that dojo, so mm. kind of a foreigner in that sense. But also, like um, the other question would be like, if if you were to give feedback to someone, how many ranks below you would you feel comfortable to just walking up to them? And at what point do you think that okay, it's not my place? Um. It, it, it depends on whether we're talking about which which art we're talking about, because there's a big. Uh, I found at least in Japan, there's a huge. Uh, there's a there's a very distinct difference in how people generally act in each community. The Jodo people tend to be a lot more relaxed, a lot more chilled, a lot more uh, commonsensical about how to do things. And because I think partly that that's because we have to deal with other people. We're tra- we're not just training ourselves we have a partner we have a tachi that we have to work with so we have to adapt we can't just be sort of set in our ways and this is the way it must be this way it must, uh, we must we must work we need to work with other people so jodo people tend to be a lot more um, relaxed and uh, open to doing things a slightly different way ei is not so much that way people in ei generally tend to be no, it is this way. It's written down like that, so it is like this, and there's not really much um, room for discussion, generally speaking. I'm, of course, I'm making huge generalizations about both communities, uh, but this is the general kind of difference of mindset. So, if I'm in an EI dojo or doing EI training, um, I would only um, give advice to someone who's like one dan below me. Um, and if and even then, if they're really good, if they're like, if I think they're better than me or as good as me, then I'll just like, no, okay, that's unless it's something super technical, like if it's something that's in the Chakyanten and and it's definitely not not allowed, I'll go up to them and say, I notice you're doing that. Just bear that in mind. Um, and whereas for Jodo. Um, I'm much more comfortable with giving direction to um, people um, my level or even even the level above sometimes if um, if it's a technique that, that I've practiced a lot more than they have, then I'll be quite comfortable saying to remind them that oh in this situation it's good to scale or in this situation it's it's what, what, this is the next part of the technique or this needs to be that way or something like that. So it really depends on the on the art that I'm training in. And then you're saying that like you're very um, laid back in that in the in the kitchen too. So you're saying that if I come up to you like a sauce that you had finished and I taste it, I'm like I'm gonna add a lot more salt in this. You're okay with that? 
That, yeah, actually, that happens quite a lot. Um, <laughs> because um, generally speaking, when I, when I make, um, um, I kind of forget about salt and pepper quite often. I forget to put the salt and pepper in, which is the, the worst, uh, possibly one of the worst things you can do in any kind of recipe. I, I never forget things like garlic. Garlic, I put a whole load of garlic in there. Um, but salt and pepper, sometimes I forget. And then, um, and my girlfriend will come over and say, uh, that, have you not forgotten something there? Like, oh, yes, right. Yeah, salt. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I would be absolutely fine with that. And um, and I think, um, and I, I kind of, the saltiness of a dish isn't, a sort of, isn't the breaking point for me. So if, if something is a little bit saltier than I would like it, um, it's still, it's like, oh, okay, this is a new spin on a, t on a particular a recipe that I've didn't think about that, that I didn't consider that it could add to the, to the recipe. So I'm, yeah, I'm totally cool with that. Cool. Well, before we move on to Sita, that's one thing that um, I heard recently on a show was if you oversalt something, the best way is not to um, try to add water and lighten it up. You, uh, apparently you add some kind of acid like uh, citrus or vinegar or something to help counterbalance. We would add yeah. sugar. Oh, well, sugar. Yeah. Family. <laughs> I'll remember that. If <laughs> yeah. anything I make is too salty, just add sugar. Uh, uh, Sita, hierarchy in the dojo and hierarchy in the kitchen. Uh, yeah, so the culture in Sweden is obviously very different from Japan when it comes to um, recognizing hierarchy and uh, social status. Um, so in my dojo, I am the leader. Um, and I want to say that I'm not too bossy, you know, you can ask my, my mates, I guess, but, um, we do have to teach newcomers the etiquette and everything else. So I'm, I'm teaching, um, we do have beginners, uh, beginners, um, training with, with, um, another person, but I'd have to explain, you know, most things from either from how to bow to the advanced techniques, um, and in the kitchen, I'm definitely very bossy. I, I don't, <laughs> I like to do everything um, by myself. And I, uh, in my kitchen, I would say, if I go home to somebody else, if I go to another dojo, obviously you have to respect um, the things that they, they do over there. So when I went to Ishida Sensei's dojo, it was sort of, I, I didn't really, uh, know exactly how to do things so i was i got told off sort of first time by the by the sensei like, no 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 you have to do that right towards the sensei first and it was just <laughs> i just felt so embarrassed um but um, yeah i mean i so yes i mean i'm i'm pretty bossy in in my own kitchen and i am used to being the leader at in my dojo, so those two sort of can go hand in hand. Well, what's an example of being bossy in the kitchen? Like just have everyone out and let me do this or are there um, things? Yeah, so if it's somebody that I know pretty well, um, I would tell them to just leave me alone and let me do this. But if it's somebody you don't really know and then they're doing something wrong, I would just, you know, I will be silent for a bit and then Ask them nicely, like, could you just <laughs> paint the onions a bit, please, you know, something like that. 
or I'll just still like, you know, go have a glass of wine. I can take over, please. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can picture you like the person's dicing is like, these, these onions are only half a centimeter. They need to be exactly 0.35 centimeters. Um, Do it again. No, I'm not pedantic. That's a different <laughs> thing. I'm bossy in the sense that I, I prefer uh, things. I need, I, I, I want some kind of control, some level of control in my own kitchen. Mm-hmm. If it's messing up, it's, it's me that's messing up. And then I would apologize to everybody. That was my fault. Um, and um, I, I need, I mean, I, I always want people's feedback on the food. Um, positive feedback, of, of course. Uh, don't say anything bad <laughs> about <the> food. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that control actually reminds me of another thing where um, I, I would go to this omakase sushi and if you're at the counter, mm-hmm. then you have to eat it as soon as they like put it in front of you. And it's mm-hmm. actually been a, been a point because like the temperature of the fish and the temperature of the rice, you, you need to have that contrast. You don't let, let like the fish warm up or the mm-hmm. rice cool down. So like it's been a point where we're, we're at an omakase and then we're sitting there and we're chatting and then like the, the pieces in front and then they'll be like, hey, you, you need to eat this now. So yeah, I could see like having control over the kitchen and the food also means that like you can provide the, the designed experience for the person mm-hmm. eating it. Um, I think it's also from, again, from uh, my upraising, like upbringing, because mom would say like, okay, it's dinner time. And then you'd have to be within five minutes by the dinner t- table when the food is still warm and then you, you eat it at its you know optimal temperature, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I, if I prepare a meal and then I say it's time to eat and somebody's like, oh, let me just do this first. I'll be like, no, it's <laughs> the food is here now. <laughs> oh, I have, I have lots of struggles in my household to, to get everyone at the table to eat on time. Everything's always cooled down. And, and when I was growing up, my grandmother had a, cowbell that she would ring and it's like it can't be anywhere in the house like whatever you're doing you're not gonna be able to continue doing it with that bell ringing <laughs> okay so moving from the we're still in the dojo so we're talking uh, the next one topic i want to bring up is cleanliness so um obviously if we're using swords and if the like the floors are not clear you can easily trip over something and someone could get injured so that's important um, safety is an important reason. The other reason is just uh, clarity of your environment means clarity of your mind too. So I think that both both are important aspects that are are brought up in the dojo. Um, and then so in the kitchen, there's probably similar similar reasons as well. Uh, Sita, why don't you start with uh, cleanliness in the kitchen and also cleanliness in in the food that you make. Um. I, I can't say I'm the, the cleanest person, but I try to keep my kitchen area clean before um, I start doing something for obvious hygiene reasons. Um, most foods I do are either like wok or in a pan. So like I can mess up how much I want on the kitchen counter, but then, you know, everything is, is in the pan and it's being boiled. And, but uh, I think the, the, the dish that I chose was the soft spring roll. Um, where you'd have to use um, the kitchen surface to to um, to wrap something, and because it's like a white sheet of rice uh, rice paper, you you know obviously anything you have on the 
on this on the side of, on on the counter would be stuck to the to the dish, and then I would just try to wipe everything clean before uh, before I start with this. But on the inside, it's as you see, it's it's super chaotic. Um, but but keeping the surface clean is is um, pretty important. Um, in the dojo, again, like um, we because in Sweden we don't have like our own uh, building to use, so we share we share the we're using actually a dance studio that we share with um, a school, I think, and it's it can't be compared to uh, to cleanliness when it comes to Japanese dojos or um, private spaces. So there we sort of, <laughs> I mean, of course we, we try, we have, uh, we have to, you know, there's some kind of etiquette when dressing in the Gia Hakema and then um, we try to wipe out, we try to, to not walk bare feet, you know, outside of that area. Um, but it's, it's not something that we have, it's like we, we don't really clean the floor every time before, um, we start one because we don't have any equipment to clean the floor with. Um, so yeah, that, um, that aspect, it's probably not very high standard, but it's not, I mean, it's clean, um, but sometimes you get people come in, uh, other people come in with, you know, winter shoes and they, they drag grind around and that's not very nice, but I, it's, it's not people from, um, from our dojo that, that does that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, in the kitchen, it seems like it's a practical aspect of that. Like the the spring rolls is delicate. It also like the sheets also pick up pretty much everything. So if you want it to be done right, you need to be clean. In the dojo, it seems like safety is more important for the cleanliness. And then after that, like whether or not it looks good. I think one parallel you would draw is to actually just check your area before you're doing something. So when it comes to yai or jai, you know, you have to make sure of the space. Um, obviously, if you see something on the floor, we remove it if it's like a piece of gravel or something. So in that sense, just be we're, we just need to be aware of the space that we're we're doing something. And um, a few years back, uh, uh, Naginataka broke one of the ceiling lamps um, during the kata, and he got hurt really bad. But because uh, the glass literally just fell down on him, and we had to, um, me and uh, my uh, uh, pub mate Simon, we had we tried to clean up all the glass off the floor. There weren't any vacuum cleaners, so we had to like sweep everything by ourselves. But we missed something, obviously. So then the the day after or the week after, during a kendo uh, training, somebody. Yeah, and it wasn't the first time. I mean, the, we've broken the ceiling lamps before, <laughs> but, and we've cleaned it up before, and then people have still afterwards they've gotten gotten glass on their feet before. So it, that's not very nice. Uh, yeah. So and, just check. Yeah. <laughs> and change the lamps. Yeah. Again, it's it's uh it's not our um, <laughs> building, so. We can we can break all the lamps so that there aren't any more obstacles in the building. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Raleen? Um, I think uh, what I picked was um, ginger beer, which is not really cooking. It's more it's more in the realm of uh, uh, brewing. 
there's um, ginger beer, you need the, um, the, uh, the bottle or the container that you put the ginger and all the ingredients in to be completely clean and sanitized and free of any kind of um, leftover organic material. Uh, because you're going to rely on the, the yeast that you're going to put in to, for the for a fermentation process that occur in there. And if there's other things that shouldn't be in there, then it can interfere with the whole process. And then you don't get ginger beer, you get more like ginger water, really. Um, but um, in the dojo, as yeah, it, in Japan is uh, famously very uh, a very, very clean country. So generally speaking, and for Iang Joe, the... Um, where we train, where I train, it's it's a dedicated dojo that no one else has has access to, no one else uses. So, um, so we have complete control over how clean it is, and it gets cleaned on a very regular basis. Um, and we don't have anything as exciting as uh, broken um, <laughs> broken lamps and things and glass on the floor. Um, oddly enough, like. Uh, last Friday, we were going to start EI training and uh, we'd just done kendo. And uh, we looked at our feet and they were all black and we couldn't work out why. They were just sort of really dirty. And I thought, what, what, what's going on? Why, why is it so dirty? And we still, we still don't know why. But we, we then went around the dojo with like a wet cloth. Um, some of us like the, um, uh, uh, I don't know if you're aware that in, um, in kids' dojos, very often, very often they'll have like a wet rag and they'll run up and down the dojo with that and pushing the rag on the floor. Um, so we did that a few times, which seemed to fix the, the solution, the, um, the problem. But you got, uh, yeah. Do you remember um, Totoro, my neighbor Totoro? Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the Makuro Kurosuke. <laughs> yeah. we, we actually used to do that when I first started uh, Kendo in the UK. That was I joined the I was part of the the kids class at the time, and that's what that's how we would start every single training session was doing that because we again we shared the the hall with um, it was a community center for um, and other sports used to use that hall so we would that was our part of our warm up really was to do that cleaning. Mm. No, I, I was talking about the the anime also had like mm. mysterious black stuff that was on there. Oh, those ones, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe uh, that was the inspiration. Yeah, you you have some kind of spirits in your in your dojo. <laughs> uh, do you guys have a choice of the next topic? Anyone you would want to bring up? Uh, any any really? for me? Uh, okay, then I'll say. Let's do patience. So, uh, patience in the martial arts, obviously, in especially the ones that we do, especially actually Iido too because it's mm. generally some, something that you just need to do a lot of um, tournaments. There's no like feedback or yeah, if you're fighting someone and knowing that, okay, there's this you have to work on. So in general, I think martial arts, um, it's just repetition over time. Like you could, you could mm. practice smart, like, you know, the saying practice smart, not hard or mm. something like that. Mm. But even if you're smart, like it just takes time. So uh, what are examples of, yeah. What, um, I, let me see if I can come up with an example of just the practice. Uh, okay, so I have an example. Um, when I was about, um, what's 2011, 2012. So when I was about eight years into 
um, my practice. I was starting, I was about, I, just before I turned fourth then, I was Sandan. And I was feeling very kind of constrained at the dojo. I was like, I'm not able to practice the way that I want to practice. And I was almost going to quit in some sense. And the only, actually, the only reason I didn't quit was because my wife was a lower rank and she was still kind of gung-ho about, no, this, there's a hierarchy in this dojo. You just follow what the senses do, even if you're not happy with it. So um, my brother, my twin brother, who was practicing with me at the time, he left. So we had the same feeling. But because I had my wife to kind of keep me in, I, I stayed. And I realized that like there's so much I learned just from, in that sense, being patient with how how the dojo was like being run, how my practice was. Um, and I think that helped me in a lot of different ways. So um, definitely there's patience in the the technique and the practice, but also patience in like with the, with the environment and the dojo is important. So yeah, your experience with patience in the practice in the dojo and then uh, with a specific recipe. I, I forget who was first last time. Around was first? Oh yeah, Sita. <laughs> So Aurelian, go. Me first. Yeah. Okay. Well, I actually had a very, very similar experience um, uh, to you, Patrick. Uh, with um, I'd just taken my uh, IQ in uh, kendo, and like um, in in the dojo I was at, we used to run um, into dojo um, shinsa uh, before you could get up. I think it was mostly for the kids. Um, so I got my, I think the first one I got my fifth, my fifth cue and it wasn't just, it wasn't, um, you didn't have to go through all every cue to get to, to Niku. You just do a Shinsa and people, the, um, the examiners would just think, okay, that's good enough for Niku. So the first one I did was, uh, Goku and then the next one I got Niku and then that sort of gave me the confidence to try for my, uh, IQ. And so I went to my queue and failed it. And then someone else who was um, who was watching, who saw my shinsa, said to me, "Oh, you didn't you didn't pass because um, uh, you went back um, once." And in kendo, it's it's always about going forward, never never step back. And I thought to myself, "This is ikkyu." I mean, this is, you know, we're not talking showdown. We're not talking Nidan Sandown or anything. This is IQ. This is the first, the first level for the, for the national uh, gradings. And I thought, is this, are they going to be this harsh on all the gradings? Like, and even, and even just for IQ. So I thought to myself, do I really want to keep doing something where um, they're going to be that harsh on, on you for, even for, for such a low grade? And it kind of made, made me question um, why I was doing kendo if I wanted to continue doing it. And um, it sort of made me reevaluate why I did kendo, what I liked about it, what I wanted to get out of it. And I realized it wasn't, the grade wasn't really that important. Like it's all nice having this sort of nice big piece of paper, but that's not, that's not why most of us do kendo. And so that, that kind of taught me the, um, the perseverance and the patience to get in there and, to, and, um, even if it's just, even if you're faced with a setback like that, just keep on, keep on practicing, keep on going, keep on training, and keep keep trying for it. So um, that was my kind of similar experience with um, 
my first real setback in, in Budo. Well, first of many uh, setback in Kendo or in Budo in general. Um, and uh, uh, that sort of mindset has been what's kind of kept me going through throughout my entire Budo career. It's, it's, in my, it's also the reason why I, why I don't put that much faith, that much um, stock in gradings in, in EINJO as well. It's like, okay, great, I passed. Okay, next. What's, what's coming next? It's not really about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, for, um, for the, um, the recipe I picked um, is a, um, it's a traditional French recipe called Beuf Bourguignon. Um, and it's, uh, it's basically a beef stew, uh, but it takes, and you, you generally won't find it in, in uh, French restaurants, certainly not the fancy French restaurants, because it takes so long to cook. It's not the kind of thing you can just whip up um, after someone orders it in, in 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, it takes um, in total about three hours to three and a half hours to cook. Um, and this is one of the recipes that, this is one of my, uh, the foods I grew up with that my mum cooked and she her beef bourguignon to this day I maintain I've I've tasted many other people's beef bourguignon and none come close to hers uh, her her one is just perfect um, so she told me how to do it she told me with um, she told me what ingredients to do how to um, how to combine them how to cook them um, the how long to let it cook after each ingredient and all the rest of it and um, and of course the first time I tried it it wasn't perfect um and it's still it's still not quite as good as as hers but it, it's almost there and i think the only different the only um uh reason it's not quite as good is because of the difference in ingredients and because i'm i'm living here in japan where the, the water's different so the stock is different the beef is going to be different so it's it's kind of different in that way but um, um but through patience of practicing it, doing it a bunch of times and being patient with the process each and every time with the amount of time it takes and just thinking to myself, okay, after this, it's going to take three hours, but I will have an awesome meal at the end of it. So, so practically, was, yeah. what, what, why does it take three hours? And what happens if you like cook it for only two hours and then try it? Um, certain parts of it won't be as, as well cooked. They won't be as, they won't be cooked at all, some of them. Um, the carrots will will not be as will not have the right consistency. They're supposed to be quite um, quite soft. The beef, especially as well, it's supposed to be basically um, to almost disintegrate and sort of break apart in your mouth as you eat. Uh, but if you don't cook them, for, if you don't cook it for, for long enough, then that won't happen. You'll end up with with tough beef and um, uh, not the right consistency generally. So, if if is this something that your mom was making when you were growing up, you would be like playing around in the house and then you just know that it starts like you can, you can smell it and then yeah. you just know you have to wait for <laughs> for when you can eat it yeah that was that was one uh when i was a kid you know you could you could you could have that smell coming and you knew that firstly food was going to be coming soon it was soon time for dinner or lunch and secondly that it would be just one of the best meals possible because it was i think it's possibly my favorite dish that she ever that she made it's, it's, it's generally, um, it's real soul food for me. Dude, so do you eat that with, uh, with rice or is it just as is? Traditionally, we, in, in 
in France, generally you'll eat it with potatoes. And you can eat the eat potatoes in any in any way, kind of uh, boiled, steamed, or in a sort of more complicated, compli- complex form like a gratin or something like that. But in my family, we generally ate it with rice, and we'd have um, we'd put the rice and then um, and then ladle in the um, uh, the bourguignon, and then we would sort of mix it in with the rice and create what we call the dog's dinner mm-hmm. with the rice and eat eat the whole thing together. And it was just the best, the best thing. Like I've, I've tried it since with potatoes, the, the traditional French way, but it's still not quite the same as, as with rice. Cool. Sida, what's your experience with uh, patients? Uh, I don't have any patients. That's my experience. <laughs> um, I think I always realize that some, you know, something is time after the fact of, either getting frustrated or having tried something over and over again I guess I mean in the dojo I would uh, I would yeah I would get a bit frustrated if I don't get a technique right after four or five times um, and and then I would obviously I would repeat it at the next session I would think oh I didn't make that I didn't do that um, really good last time so I'll just try that again and then see how it feels. And then if it didn't feel right, I'll just do it over and over again. And then the result would obviously be that it's taken a longer time and you've done something repeatedly and then you've improved at it. And uh, afterwards I would think, okay, yeah, maybe, you know, it needed this much time and this much practice to, to be good at something, uh, which I didn't think about during, during the, the process. And I would just be frustrated. Um, and um, in the kitchen, I don't, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I usually, usually I try to make something that is edible with, uh, within 30 minutes. Um, but, uh, you know, again, growing up, we've had like buff bourguignon, we have, you know, stews that take longer time and then the broth I make also take a long time. Um, but the dish I chose was uh, pork knuckles cooked in, uh, in soy sauce. Um, it's sort of like a double patience thing because first of all, it takes about four hours to cook um, the meat, which is on a bone and you get all the gelatin into the, into the sauce and it would just, you know, cook really, really tender and uh, the bone marrow and everything would just, you know, and all the flavors gets, mi- gets mixed. But afterwards, you'd have to wait until it's cool to eat it because it's a cold dish. Um, so it's supposed to um, get cold and harden, and then you slice it into thin, thin pieces of like colorful meat. That's you know you have the skin that is dark, and you have the fat which is light, and you have the dark pinkish meat uh, in between. So it's like a it's a nice dish to look at as well. Um, so, you know, often I would just, you know, get impatient after I've cooked it. I would say, okay, it's been in room temperature for half an hour. I can cut it now. And then everything would just fall apart. Uh, then I'll wait back in the fridge you go. I'll wait until, until tomorrow instead. Uh, so then again, I learned after the fact I had to wait. And then I wait. And it works. That's a helpful lesson, actually, because like for new newer beginners or even kids, like you can just say, hey, be patient, but they don't really know what that means. So it's like experience, failure, 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 
recognize that it took time to do something and then you can say hey look if you just wasn't that frustrated in the beginning and you knew it was going to take this time then you can be patient i think for me it's like if i if i know that this won't this will take a longer time maybe i will will just lose the motivation to mm. want to get it correct the next time mm. so it's i guess it's sort of a plus that sort of frustration that just keeps me going at least to try to repeat something over and over again mm. Mm. yeah in some ways be- yeah It, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, when I had my I um, when my dad was visiting, and I got it. I I made him. Um, I introduced him to takoyaki, which is hands down one of my favorite Japanese dishes. Just amazing. And I said I said to him, "Well, buy the takoyaki. They've been freshly made, right, sensoji." And um, I said, "Wait a minute before you eat them, because when you let them let them cool down, you're going to burn your mouth if you don't." And did he listen to me? No, he just. Grabbed, grabbed a toothpick, go straight in, and then immediately, um, because he didn't have the patience, he was just um, burned the inside. He actually couldn't swallow it because it was so hot. He had to spit it back out and had to throw it into the ash can. That was a whole takoyaki wasted. Oh, the, the number of time I've burned myself on my own food because <laughs> And then the thing is, if you burn, like if you eat a hot broth and you burn yourself on the first time, you won't be able to taste anything, you know, for a day. So, yeah. Oh man, I, I like this morning. I made this coffee like super quick, and I filled it to the brim. So I'm like, I'm just gonna sip off the top part just to make sure. That I already burnt the tip of my tongue. Yeah. But but this is a cool like um. I always thought of patience as something that like you just you just be like okay, I'm gonna wait, and it's more of a feeling of waiting. But from mm-hmm. our stories here, it sounds like as much as it's a feeling of waiting, it's also um. A feeling of being okay with being with frustration in the moment, knowing that in the future you're going to get something out of it. So, mm-hmm. like both for uh, Aurelian and I, we've already felt like what it's like to to be completely frustrated and realize that if we just waited and felt like what's afterwards, it's okay and it's actually better. Mm-hmm. So you build up that kind of habit of of doing mm-hmm. that, and you realize you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next topic, let's okay, kind of related to patience is repetition. So I think I've already mentioned this in terms of our practice. Um, so it'd be just cool about uh, when when we repeat, if we're repeating something good that ingrains in our body, um, and then it becomes natural, and that's what we're aiming for in our practice. Um, so repetition uh, shows up in cooking as well. So, Sida, why don't you start with uh, your experience with repetition? Um, if you have a dojo experience, talk about that, and then talk about the recipe. Yeah, I mean, I think for everybody, the dojo experience, I mean, tra- training is repetition in itself. Uh, and you repeat, you know, muscle memory and uh, how, how you feel when doing something, what you've, um, and looking at, If you have a video footage, you know, trying to um, copy copy a sensei, repeat what they're doing. Um, I've had numerous role models um, of senseis I tried to copy, and and uh, for competitions, uh, for gradings, you try to do the embu in your dojo, um, repeating your mind that it's another scenario so that you get you're getting used to the feelings um 
uh, and you know how you breathe and everything so it's either it's you know repetition of the same thing over and over again or you try to repeat in your mind uh replicate another scenario and then trying to train um with like train on that in your mind um and in the kitchen uh, i picked uh, dumplings and for me it's it's trying to recreate the taste and the feeling I got when I was a kid at my grandparents, you know, during New Year's or Chinese New Year's when, when everybody would get, get together and make, make dumplings. And, you know, we would be five, six people, even the kids are involved and they would make, you know, hundreds of dumplings. Um, and when we moved to Sweden, it was just me and my parents and we would, um, you know, once or twice a month, make dumplings, and it's you know everything from making, kneading the the dough, um, rolling out the um, the the like the pancakes, I guess, the small fat um, dough. Um, that takes you know skill with the rolling pin, uh, using one hand to to roll the pin and the other hand to to maneuver the dough so you get a a round shape with like a little bit thicker in the center. And then getting the right amount of filling and then kneading it together in an efficient way. I'm not saying I make like pretty dumplings, but I make a lot of them really quick. <laughs> so, and for me here, it's more like the, you know, the taste and then the, the experience of making it. Um, so it's just basically doing, putting your fingers together, I don't know, a hundred times <laughs> every time you're making dumplings and then getting efficient at it. And that's the important part for me. Mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah, it seems like once you're, once you're practiced in it, you can also be more efficient. So you're like, that allows you to do quick. Yeah, that was what amazed me the most when I was a kid, like that they would, they would roll out a dough in five seconds and then the dumpling is done within the next five seconds. They were just like, making things really quickly and it's it's consistent and it tastes good yeah 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 i always enjoy going to like those shanghai restaurants where like they have this big window or taiwanese restaurants that dumpling ones they have a big, big window in front of the the kitchen and then you can like see in how they're making each of the dumplings it's just so efficient i would never be able to make dumplings for somebody else because i want it for myself <laughs> I made this. Yeah. All right, Aurelian, repetition. Um, repetition, well, I mean, that's kind of basically what EI and Joe is um, the foundation of all, of all our training, right? That, that's how we, uh, it's how we um, work on our techniques and how we improve them. And it's kind of the, the yeah, like I said, the, the foundation for, um, for improvement and for all, for all three, Arts like Iaido, Jodo, and Kendo, um, and uh, but it it can be quite um, difficult to capture um, how someone else is doing something just from seeing them, or sometimes even if you've done it yourself, and Sensei says uh, for this one try to do this, and then you'll try it a few times, screw it up, and not get it right, and then one time he'll say Leah like that like that. And then you try to recapture that that moment, that lightning in the bottle, and you you can't because 
um, you weren't really, at least for me, I wasn't, I was, I was thinking so much about what I was doing, but I wasn't really kind of feeling it. Like I, I wasn't taking full, um, being fully aware of what my body was doing and exactly how it was moving. So I, it, it's quite difficult to replicate. And I just have to, you just have to keep repeating the same movement again and again and hope that it gets back to that. Um, uh, but um, it's like that like for me sometimes like I make the perfect dough for the dumplings mm. but then I don't I, I don't really go with a recipe I, everything is you know from from my, my parents and then you mm. say, oh my God, this dough is perfect or this filling is perfect and then next time you feel completely at it I mean <laughs> you just try to yeah. repeat until you get to, to that same feeling again yeah that's that's kind of um the way uh it's been quite frustrating for me asking my mum for recipes because um she's been doing them for so long that she never thinks about the ingredients to put in how much of what she just does um uh, what she likes to call the the pifometre, which is kind of like a, a french slang expression to to mean um uh, you just have to kind of judge it by eye or play by ear kind of really um so like for, um i was asking her for she makes really good crepes as well and um i also for her a grape recipe and she had no idea how much milk or um uh flour she was using she could tell me how many eggs because those accounted but the flour and the milk she had no idea so i had to so i had myself try and repeat making the mixture multiple times before I worked out and then I started doing it the same way like the way I make pancake mixture now I can't tell you how much of each uh, ingredient I put in because I myself have perfected it just by looking and judging and going okay roughly roughly this yeah it's funny um, when we're watching um, some cooking like cooking shows that teach you how to make it so in mm -hmm. like in Canada or the US when I see the shows it's always precise measurements But then when I was growing up as a kid, my grandmother would always watch these like Chinese cooking shows. And pretty much every ingredient is, um, there's a term in Cantonese called sik long, which kind of, I think it translates to um, an approximate amount. So mm. like they're always saying, put this into it, uh, approximate amount. And like approximate <laughs> amount, it's like, okay, I can eyeball it based on what I there see. Used, there used to be like this video from this, Uh, this chef um, who like he would he would you know make something super complicated but the, what he does is he's take this big you know soup ladle or whatever and then he just picks ingredients with that no idea how much it is but you just know what he's using but you know, everything is like you know it, they go together so just use an adequate amount in Swedish we call it logom which uh, yeah. just right that's right <laughs> you ask somebody you know how much of this is you know just at the end of a month Yeah, so that's actually an interesting, um, just parallel to our practice too, is like, um, if you were to, I don't, I don't know, certain, certain dojos, especially how we're practicing in, in Japan, it's just like watch and then do. While like you, you'd find in more Western countries that are used to academics where like exactly this angle at this height at blah, 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 blah. And that seems like a parallel to, to cooking and like just watch how the cook is doing it see approximate amount and just try it yourself until you get it right. Mm. Can I just pause one minute? I need to 
plug my um, my computer in. It's about to die. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have any more? In that, did you have any more in that subject, or do you want do we want to move on? Not a single thing. I'm I'm fine. Okay. Uh, let's go to actually since we talked about repetition, which is almost like we think about doing something simple over and over and over again. So it's just becomes ingrained. So on the, on the other aspect, there's simple things that you can elevate into something much more. So the topic is elevating simple ingredients um, into something that's uh, more than what you think it is. Uh, so I think Sita started the last one. So Aurelian, you start this one. And I don't think you, had, did you send a picture for this one? I think so, but it's it's more of a combination picture. It's okay. got it's got a, the the recipe I picked was a maigret ganache, um, and in the picture there's there's the maigret on the right, and then there's a, a gratin dauphinois on the left. Um, and there's two pictures. There's one where there's the whole dish of gratin, the whole duck, the uh, whole the, duck, the whole maigret. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the the one I picked for this one was specifically the maigret ganache, which is at least the way I cook it is supremely simple. Like it's literally the duck, some salt and pepper, and that that is it. Um, you don't even use when you put it in the pan. You don't even use any um, any butter or any um, olive oil. It's just you put it on the pan with the fat side down, and you rely on the the heat of the pan to melt the um, the fat, which then sort of um, stops it from uh, sticking to the pan. And it's just a fantastically uh, simple recipe. Like you can. I've seen I've seen other recipes where you add all kinds of different sauces to it, but my personal favorite is still just simple, um, just the salt and pepper seasoning, and then just cook it maybe a couple of a couple of um, minutes on each side, and then you have it. Um, I'm also more of the uh, when it comes to red meats, I'm much more of a, a rare um, kind of person. Like if it's still alive, that's that's just right for me, I think. Um, so, so for me, the, uh, the so the, with the duck, it's just literally maybe two minutes on each side, um, maximum. Um, and yeah, it's just fantastically simple. Um, nothing, um, nothing super complicated. It's one of those things that I can just literally just put together in under five minutes, and there you go. Mm. And it's um, and as you were saying, it's kind of you can do the same thing with um, with, with certain techniques in um, in EI and Joe. Like you can sort of ch um, play around with the with the timing and the feeling of, of particular techniques and and sort of um, endow them with a whole new um, dimension. Yeah, it's so interesting when when I go to like a, I rarely get to eat like a full duck breast like this and it's usually to a higher end restaurant and like they charge insane amount and it's actually just like <laughs> they, they barely do anything to it all they have to do is like zero exactly. a bit on the side and yeah it, you do that at home and do it arguably better i think i need to try that i recommend it it's really good sita uh, elevating simple ingredients yeah, so I picked um, different ways to cook eggs. I think uh, eggs has been part of my staple diet since I was a kid. And I think it's one of the most versatile uh, ingredients that you can work with. Um, so in the picture, I, I on the top, you have the tamagoyaki. It's a Japanese omelet where, you know, you, you 
whisk the eggs and you heat it in layers at a time and you roll it up and you get this sort of firm texture with the way or the way I make it, I, I put a bit more oil so you get this sort of oily um, in between. Um, and it's a bit sweet and it goes great on rice. Um, and then, you know, and if you instead whisk the eggs, you add some water, add some salt, and then you steam it for about 20 minutes, you get the, the steamed um, egg cake, as we call it in, in the Mandarin, uh, which is like a tofu-like texture, it's jiggly, and then you put some uh, vinegar, black vinegar on top, uh, which somehow heightens the, the flavor of the eggs a lot. Uh, sesame, some sesame seed oil uh, as well. And it just completely transforms the ingredients. And then uh, the bottom left, it's just like a normal omelet that's fried with some vegetables. And you get like, if you put eggs, uh, especially egg white, you know, in really hot oil, it gets this crispy texture. Again, completely transforms the, 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 the ingredients. And I like to... Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate how, you know, how something as simple as an egg can be transformed in, uh, in these ways to, um, yeah, really give different uh, experiences. And uh, like what Aurelian said, you know, a technique, depending on, you know, how you perform it, you know, context, whatever, can trans, you know, change its, uh, its, um, what you call it, the contact, uh, no, the, <laughs> the usability. Uh, sorry about the messing up, but, um, but like for, I think uh, adding to that, you know, posture and facial expression sort of also add to what it is you're doing. So like, I guess the vinegar on the eggs would be, you know, a good metzger or something like that <laughs> 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 to, um, to add some flavor in what you're doing, because yes, you can do uh, you can do uh, the correct techniques, but you need to um, put you know put some love in it, some some sort of personal touch to it, so it's it becomes you know more alive. Um, yeah, yeah. This whole concept actually reminds me of um, what a lot of sensei say is that yai is completely encapsulated in one technique, which is Maya, and how. Like you just have to do that one and you'll understand everything in the eye. And I find that even to a more narrow extent, Nukitsuke, um, once you kind of feel it and get it down in doing Nukitsuke in Mai, you feel like you can do Nukiuchi and, and in other ways as well. And it just feels natural. So in some ways, um, when you're struggling with one technique, I found for me, at least, I found if I just go back and work on Mai, somehow like the other techniques also improve. Mm. It's um, kind of like what um, um, what a lot of, again, a lot of sensei kind of say, like you can do it. Oh, sorry. There was um, a lot of people, uh, particularly beginners who um, fall out of, out of love with EI or out of uh, Jodo, they, they only see the structure. They only see the rigidity and the fact that the book says this, therefore you must do that. But they don't realize that within those, what the book says, there's all this other, this other dimension and aspect and uh, layer of practice and how we 
perform each movement. As you say, just even just in, in the Gitske, you can do that in a variety of ways which still fulfill the criteria of the Chakaganten. But it's elevating that simple technique by um, manipulating the timing and the feeling and all the other aspects that, that are in it. So speaking of which, um, we were talking about how, or Sita said that if you just add vinegar to the egg, it kind of changes the flavor. So the next topic is actually uh, flavor. So normally when we think about flavoring foods, it's like you it can be salty or it can be sour or sweet or whatever, but that's just one thing. But like the really truly great dishes are ones that balance a lot of those mm. different things or provides like it's not all even, like there's spikes in ones or the other ones. So similarly, when we're watching a good um, demonstration of Budo, you could kind of see the difference between people. Like there are certain tastes that they have. And I think the term Aji is used uh, as well when you're watching that. So uh, Sita, why don't you start us off with uh, something? What, what did you choose for Aji? Yeah, the dish I chose was century egg porridge. Um, and it's, uh, I think from experience, it's, it's like an acquired taste, not a lot of, uh, Western people understand this, this thousand year egg concept, like these black eggs. So it's, I don't want to basically. Sorry. Is this the, the rotten egg thing that they call it? Yes. The rotten egg. Yeah. Yeah, it's not rotten per se. I think it's been treated in some kind of base. Uh, usually you mm. wrap it up in, in straw and ash. So you get a basic environment around the egg and it coagulates the proteins inside. And, um, and then you get these um, beautiful protein um, crystals on, on the outside of, of the egg white, which then now is black. So we also call it like the the pine flower egg because of these crystals you get on, on egg white. But what is, what is both the disgusting part and the, the great part is the consistency. And when you cook it into a porridge, you, um, you're you know, adding this sort of natural um, uh, umami into, into the porridge. And, oh, and it's just something like, I find it's just interesting and I mean, I love eggs and I love porridge. So this is like a really high-end gross food <laughs> that you need to sort of understand the culture and you have to have sort of some understanding of, of the, the, the food itself to, to appreciate. And for me, like this is, it, um, this is sort of like explaining Yaido to people that don't really that aren't really into Budo, like they, they just think, oh, you're just dressed in skirts and waving your sword around, you know, um, or, but, but like, um, I think it's once you understand what it is and you've tried it a few times <laughs> and then you sort of realize the, the, like the, the different um, nuances in the taste. And it's like, you know, watching an Eitan sensei, um, if you, have some understanding of Yaido and you can sort of pick up these, these small things that they're doing um, um, and sort of find it um, um, beautiful or, you know, powerful or um, appreciate it in a way that somebody that doesn't really understand Yaido 
um, might appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Or Jodo. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, it's funny because um, in Hong Kong, you would see the century old egg congee um, as a street food. So it's like one of the cheapest things you can get and you can just walk up anywhere. But you can also see it at like high fine dining restaurants. It's like the same dish. Yeah, it's not cheap to get them in uh, in Sweden. <laughs> I'd love to try it next time I'm in Hong Kong. Yeah, whenever that is. And we need to find a way to to smuggle black market thousand year old eggs to Sita in Sweden. <laughs> no, we have them. They're just pretty expensive. Can you can you make them yourself those eggs? Or does it take, Probably, um... I've never, I've never <laughs> looked up DIY um, videos. Um, I there's like this. I don't know if it's a myth, like oh, you need horse urine to to make, <laughs> because you, I think it's related to the ammonia for the basic base environment thing. Um, but but it has to be horse ammonia, does it? Sorry, <laughs> it has to be horse ammonia, does it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Aurelian, you chose mm. some kind of salmon dish. Yeah, uh, oven-baked Dillon garlic salmon. This is a, a recipe I kind of found um, independently of, of uh, my family and uh, my parents. Um, but it's just, um, it's very, very rich. It's got so many tastes going on in there. There's, there's still, there's garlic, there's uh, lemon, there's the slight acidity of the tomatoes and uh, uh, and the um, the mushrooms as well, um, and again, it's it's a very very simple and um, uh, easy to make dish. You just put all the ingredients in um, in some um, tin foil, close it, put it in the oven for uh, twenty minutes on uh, one hundred and eighty degrees, and and it's done basically. And it, and it's it it's so full of diff of tastes that. It kind of, but not too much. It, it's got that right kind of balance of of um, variety of taste in um, in a single dish, um, and the right is just some kind of standard um, uh, frying, uh, fried um, uh, potatoes and uh, and carrots. Um, uh, but it, and and if if we sort of Bring this over to to EI and Joe. It's um, getting some um, not put, not putting not making not making your technique too crammed full of of different kind of tastes and different kind of feelings, but and and making sure that they all um, match and correspond with each other and agree with each other, so that to make um, a, a complex. Technique again, again bringing, combining it with with some, with some elevating simple techniques. If you can um, put all those into a into a single technique and do something a little bit um, interesting and different and inspired by your sensei, this sensei, this other person that you admire, or maybe even this kohai that who who's doing something that is is really quite nice um, and sort of. Going beyond the, simp the simplicity of of, a, of uh, certain techniques or certain kata, even. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just want to do a quick time check. We're we're scheduled mm -hmm. to end in one minute. Uh, do you guys want to end now or do one one more? 
I have. Okay. I'm. I'm free. Okay. <laughs> uh, so let's do. Um, how about having a? We're talking about IG, so it's kind of like the demonstration performance. So having a vision for the final creation before you even start. Uh, so in this sense, like we talk about, actually in sports is same thing too. If you're in a competition, you want to visualize yourself performing whatever you're doing. And in some cases, even visualize yourself, uh, visualize three flags going in your flavor, like visualize everything. And then when you go into it, you kind of already have that. So we, there's a similar kind of feeling in when you're making certain dishes that you, you kind of need to know what you want to end up with before you start working on it. So Aurelian, why don't you start us off with uh, your choice? Um, I chose um, an uh, apple crumble, which is a kind of very, um, it's another one of those um, recipes that I got from uh, my mom, who's very good at it, uh, traditional um, British um, dessert. And you can have, there's, there's different varieties. There's uh, there's apple crumble, there's apple and blackberry crumble, which is uh, actually my personal favorite. Uh, there's, uh, there's, we can also get rhubarb crumble. Um, and so with this one, again, and this, this kind of applies to all the dishes I've learned from my parents is that, you know, I already have in my mind what it should be, what, what it should end up as, what the end product looks like and tastes like. And it's just getting there that, um, that is, um, that I'm not sure how to how to do, or I'm still learning how to do. Um, and this is another one where my mom, I said to my mom, "How how much of this and this and this do you put in?" And she's like, "I don't know." <laughs> so, so there was another uh, an added another added challenge to to making it. Um, but it, it but it it kind of it's a good way to to to. Uh, not just myself, but generally speaking, if you, as you said, you've got a, a final product uh, that can guide you towards how to get there. It can give you an idea of how to how to achieve that that end result, um, and particularly for when when you're um, preparing for uh, for shinsa, um, you're, it, it helps to know like you can you can visualize your your number being um, announced on the on the paper, the result on the, on the successful passes. Um, but uh, but you already have a kind of um, idea in your mind of what represents that that grade or that that level, and you can use that to base your own training and to inform um, how um, how you feel when you go out onto the floor. Um, you can also look at the the other people that you'll be um, going up um, on the floor with, who will be grading at the exact same time as you. And you think to and you think to yourself, oh God, this guy, this guy's really good. It's, he beats me every single bloody Thai guy. So, but it it gives you it can give you um, uh, motivation to sort of change your technique a little bit or to really um, sort of heighten your um, uh, the effort that you're putting in and uh, the uh, what's what's the right word. Um, the, the precision that you that you're endowing your technique with, and the the attention to, to, to every single one of your movements, it can really inform um, how much effort you put into that. And yes, we say that we should be doing that anyway, but 
it, it, one of the ways that we can get there is by having this visualization of the end product and going, okay, this is what I need to do. Then you can be precisely here. This is the exact speed, the timing, the, the feeling I want to give to that particular technique. Um, and you can use that to, um, to change what you're doing or to, to make, to ensure that you're doing it. Hmm. So that sounds like something that's, um, when you have the apple crumble, it seems like a very simple dish and simple recipe. Mm. But in this case, like, you know that if you added, if you had like more sour apples, then it would taste a little different. If you added the blackberries, it would be different. That's mm. how kind of you look at, okay, what kind of crumble do I want to make? And then you know exactly what you need to change to, to do it. Yeah. Um, and same thing for the, uh, the, the crust at the top. It's, it's a combination of uh, sugar, butter, and um, uh, flour. And again, with that, if you want to make it a slightly more um, uh, crusty and caramelized crust, you can add more sugar. If you want it to be more, um, more like a cookie type um, uh, consistency, then you can add a little bit more flour, a little bit more um, butter as well, so you can adapt that to um, change the, the consistency. And as you said, the, um, uh, if you're going to use blackberries, you're going to put uh, rhubarb in there as well, or if you're just going to have apple, and you can, you can pick the different kinds of apple as well uh, to, to affect the, the final outcome. Mm. Yeah, it seems like a, a really versatile dish too <laughs> and what you choose to put into it. Yeah. Cool, Sita. Yes, so um, let's see. I picked the, um, I'm just fine what I picked. Having a fun, yeah. So I picked oven baked salmon with pesto and feta cheese um, because it's one of the few dishes that I need a, to look up a recipe for to make. Um, I think so for me, it's, um, anything that I don't really know how to do. I have to look it up and then, you know, obviously there are pictures and the recipe. So you have this expectation of uh, how it should be. Um, and then this is one of the dishes that doesn't ever really turn out the way that I had visioned because either the salmon would be like oddly shaped and then the, the topping with the pesto and feta would like be melted all over instead of like in a neat layer on top. And then here I burned the, the pine seeds um, so it doesn't look as nice. Um, <laughs> so that's, I guess, an example of having a vision and then not really achieving it, but then again, be okay with it because you get <laughs> nutrients and it tastes, doesn't taste that bad. Uh, <laughs> so that's basically, you know, every, every kata that you ever messed up is, is sort of this, you have the recipe of what the kata should be, you know, you know how to turn on the oven, you know how to, you know, um, open a bag of pine, pine nuts and, and, uh, and um, fry them, but, you know, then either the, the temper is incorrect, like the temper is too high and everything gets melted or, you know, things get burned, um, but you still learn along the way. Um, so this is a vision of what I wanted to to be, but didn't really turn out as I expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, that's a helpful thinking too, like whether it's um, performing a kata or, or 
going into a competition, having a, having a set goal in mind would then allow you to look at the difference between um, what you expected and what actually happened. And then you can make that adjustment to adapt. But if you didn't have that view in the first place, um, you could just be like, why did I lose or why did I fail or why, why did this not work? You, it's much harder to, to improve that way. I think for me, it's more, yeah, it's a bit fair to say, you know, it's the journey that, that is more important than, than in this case, the vision. Um, I think the vision motivates you to, to do something. And then if it doesn't turn out, you've still had that experience. You still got to eat something, you know, instead of starve. <laughs> cool. So this has been amazing. I have one final question um, for you guys each to answer. Um, so it's Ishiro Sensei's 100th birthday, and he decides to go to your house for a meal cooked by you. <laughs> what do you make? You can take a few seconds to think My about God. it. My God. Christ. Uh. I would make dumplings, I think. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Force him to yeah, join you. He has to make it with you, because that's the experience. <laughs> <laughs> That would be a, a good joke. <laughs> it's either dumplings or um, uh, the the hundred year or in China, if you if you turn if you, you after a certain age you eat ramen or noodles for for your birthday because it it symbolizes longevity. So in the best case, you would find a noodle that is one single noodle, but it fills up a whole bowl. So that's like that's a symbol of of longevity. Maybe if I learn how to make that, I'll probably make that. Well, you have a few years to, to practice. Yeah, yeah it's, he's got about uh, <laughs> a couple of decades to go. So uh, we'll, we'll, we've got lots of time to think about that. Really, um, what I, would think, you make? I think um, mine would possibly be, um, it's a dish I'm actually not very good at making. I'm still learning how to, how to make it. And that's a... Um, um, a swordfish tagine, um, which I then guess I think there's a, there's a picture of um, somewhere. And it's a traditional um, Moroccan dish. Mm, I don't um, think you sent it. Did I oh, wait, right here. It? There it is. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a picture of it in the proper dish. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a tagine. It's, it's got like a, um, an earthenware um, pottery base to it. And it's got a kind of tall, elegant sort of lid to it. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's got a lot of um, interesting, interesting tastes. Um, swordfish also is not something that's eaten a whole lot in either, either in Japan or, or in France or in, in the UK. Um, and uh, got uh, lemon and uh, uh, potatoes, uh, green peppers, onions, um, garlic, a little bit of ginger in there as well. Um, and it's cooked for about about half an hour. Um, and generally, the guideline is that you uh, you cook it long enough for the the sauce to reduce a little bit. So it's sort of a, a kind of a, a thick sauce. And starts out quite watery, but because you cook it so long, it, um, it sort of uh, some of the moisture evaporates. 
and you eat that with um, with bread, um, uh, preferably like a baguette or something like that. So I think that I, I I'm pretty sure he's never eaten this before in his life. So it would be um, a surprise for him. Mm-hmm. He also wouldn't expect me to make a Moroccan dish since I'm since I have no connection to Morocco. But yeah, I think that's probably what I'd do for him. And of course, um, the uh, my mum's uh, chocolate cake. Mm. Yeah, we actually here, let me just quickly show that one too because mm. you did put that in. That's all. Yeah, where is uh, it? Actually, and then that's that's the that's the fondant chocolat. Oh no! Um, yeah. Which, which actually, now that you mention, now that you mention that, I might. Uh, I'm not sure if I make that or if I make uh, Mum's chocolate cake because they're, <laughs> but they're both equally delicious. Uh, possibly that actually, I think you might prefer that. Mm. Yeah, so it'll be a main course of tagine and then a, um, a dessert of uh, fondant. Cool. That's my plan. No one, no one, no one release it to him. No one tell him. <laughs> All right, uh, so this has been super fun. Thank you guys so much for, for doing this. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, and I, yeah, hopefully um, if, we, if we come up with other ideas, we could potentially do this in the future, other dishes. We did leave out a few, so it'd be fun, maybe in a couple of months or something. Um, mm. Otherwise, it'd be great to, to meet up sometime and have you guys cook for me. Um, that'd be awesome. It's a deal. We should we should all do we should all do um, take turns meeting up in in Canada and Sweden and Japan yeah or wherever I am a food tour yeah and maybe maybe a little training on the tour. side yeah yeah if you, food, Sweden, if you come to Sweden we can try the the fermented herring <laughs> I I am uh, not touching that. <laughs> Just tell me, it sounds disgusting. I've never tried. I've actually never tried it either, so it would be really? a good point to actually experience it. Or maybe, maybe I should try it just for just on a dare, just to say I've tried it because I've tried metal. It can't be worse than metal. It's mm. a lot worse than metal. <laughs> well, hopefully that doesn't require horse urine to also. <laughs> no, I hope. Not. Don't don't give them the idea. Don't give the Swedes the idea of putting horse urine with us. <laughs> I think in Iceland they have this fermented shark. That's yeah, as well, right? Uh, that's also quite yeah. Um, my, my cousin told me about it. They put it in the in the ground. They they piss on it. They put it in the ground for like yeah. ninety days, whatever it is, and then I they eat it. In. Yeah, <laughs> or, or they just give it. Apparently, no, they just according to him, they just give it to tourists. <laughs> so I think that's. <laughs> I think there's something not quite right going on. But it sounds like piss is the magical ingredient for pretty much everything. Yeah, maybe that's why French cooking's been going yeah. wrong all this time. Mm-hmm. We just need some piss in our in our <laughs> bourguignon. All right, I'm not having that next time you cook it. <laughs> yeah, make right. this with a secret ingredient. Thank you guys so much. You all, it has salt in it, right? It's supposed to be a little salty. Yeah, just a, just a little bit. Though. Yeah, and you can you can change it based on what you drink. Like if you drink a lot of water, if you drink coffee. Mm. All right. Okay, that's right, enough of that, that conversation. Right. <laughs> cool. Thank you guys so much. Uh, have okay, a great day. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Take care. Have a lovely one.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting me at patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. To contribute to this effort, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada or subscribe to our newsletter at subscribe at tokushikai.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.